Hello, I'm Bram Batu. And I'm Sean Carbanta. And welcome to our podcast, The Weekly Dose of High School, where we'll be guiding you through the life of a high school student while speaking to knowledgeable people in the industry. So welcome to our third episode. Today, we're here with Dan Zhou, who is the founder and chief executive officer of the college counseling program, Ready Edge Go. In today's episode, we're going to learn some tips that are going to help you in your high school years. So to start off today's podcast, would you please like to introduce yourself to our audience, Dan? Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I really believe in what you guys are doing. Um, a lot of what I do is actually the same. I'm really just trying to make high school life easier. I had uh, started this company, Ready Edge Go, 10 years ago, 2012, when I left Google, where I was working full time. Before that, I was working in Wall Street in the equity markets and stocks. Um, but basically, I just decided to start really focusing my life on the problems I really felt were worth solving. And for me, kind of reflecting on my own time in high school, that was really one of the most challenging times. It was really stressful. There are a lot of pressures and expectations, not just with academics, but also just with personal life. And so I just thought, you know, why don't we just start something new, something that's refreshing and that doesn't look like look at a high school like a machine, uh, but rather, you know, really look at a high school as a human being, uh, someone who can be happy, someone who can thrive and find their passions uh, early, uh, not compromise on things like what they love for money um, and get into the best colleges along the way. So, you know, after um, leaving Google, I went back to uh, to school actually at UC Berkeley where I had studied myself to study college admissions and career planning. And so I'm an avid uh, researcher, reader, and now actually I'm working on my own book and authoring uh, on basically just, you know, <laughs> like happiness, you know, I think, it starts with high school. You know, I'm an expert on college admissions, been doing it for most of my life now. And there's really nothing I don't know about um, how high school and college admissions work. Um, but more than that, I think uh, I just really am passionate about helping people be happy. Great. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode, shall we? Dan, my first question is to you. People in high school are most likely debating whether they should take the SAT or ACT. This is pretty common. So how does one figure out which, which standardized test would be best for them? Well, in my training in college admissions at UC Berkeley, you know, we were told that the, the studies and the data shows that uh, 97% of students actually don't see any difference at all between the scores. When, when, so for instance, if you were to take an SAT and an ACT, you get the equivalent result. Um, for not, that's true for 97% of the students, but, you know, recently we've, I've kind of seen at least in the past five or six years that there tends to be almost like a slightly higher scores now, slightly uh, on the ACT. Um, and so how does one figure out which one they should take? Well, first and foremost, I think it's good to take a practice test for both. Um, and to kind of just kind of feel out, you know, which one, uh, is fits you better. Um, that being said, from my own research over the years, um, you know, the SAT tends to be the, I think, objective, the easier exam. There's just less moving parts. You have more time per question. And um, the essay component is also an uh, analytical one versus the ACT, right? You have an extra science component to work, worry about. You have less time per question. There's, they take you higher levels of math um, and the, the essay components are argumentative in nature. So long story short, you know, from an analysis, we believe at Radio Edge Go that the SAT is still the objectively easier exam, less moving parts, more simple, more time um, per question. 
but again, at the end of the day, uh, I think you just have to take um, both tests after really kind of, you know, preparing in some ways for both and um, see which one really is kind of works for you. And try not to make a, you know, I, I'd say a, a conclusion as to which one is better. I'd say just take both and see which one you do better at ultimately, right? Because you have all the attempts through uh, until your college application due date. Uh, so that's a lot of attempts. Thank you, Dan. And now still sticking on the topic of standardized testing. Um, Dan, what do you think on the fact when colleges claim to be test optional? Do you think test optional puts an applicant at a disadvantage versus like an applicant who has like a significantly higher or a significantly high score on the ACT or SAT, like around a 1500 plus on the SAT and like a 34 plus on the ACT? So in short, I think if you have the data to prove more aptitude, that's always better, right? Uh, you know, as just empathize for a moment with an admissions reader, um, you know, obviously we want to see more proof of, of a student's aptitude. So I'd say, you know, naturally if a student, let's say are all things held equal, well, they both have the same GPA, the same course selection, the same PCs. If one has, let's say, uh, you know, a test score that, that looks as good as their GPA or better, um, and the other one doesn't have any test score to begin with. And by the way, AP test scores also, you know, we'd like to see too, um, which I don't think is talked about enough. Um, you know, obviously the slight edge is going to go to the student who can provide more data. But the caveat there I just really want to emphasize is that just because you submit a test score doesn't mean it's beneficial to you, right? Because for instance, um, let's say a student's, you know, GPA is, you know, 3.8 unweighted. Um, if you take 3.8, divide that by four, multiply that against 1600, that's a 1520. So if you're a 3.8 student, you can kind of think about, okay, well, what's a good enough score for me to, to make myself look good? And it's like, well, you don't want to submit a test score that is worse than your GPA, right? So it's like, okay, for a 3.8 student, you are expected to score in the 1500s. And, you know, if you have a 1470, then you have some, then you have a kind of a hard decision to make. Cause it's like, well, yeah, sure. You got a 1470, but it's lower than your overall GPA that, you know, and our, and our, from our professional experience, we would actually just not submit that because again, we're trying to prove aptitude, not disprove your aptitude. So I'd say, yes, it's advantageous if your score is as good or better than your GPA equivalent. Well said, Dan. And now I'm going to give you a quick list containing application elements in an order that I feel is the most important to least important in the application process. And if you agree with me or disagree with me, let me know, or let me know if you have a slightly different order or not and briefly explain as to why. So here's my list. Number one is going to be your GPA. The second, in my opinion, will be your course rigor, like how many APs and honor classes you've taken. The third will be your essays and your supplementals. And the fourth would be your extracurriculars and other activities. And the fifth would be your letter of recommendations from your two teachers and your college counselor from your, in your school. And the sixth, um, I call them as hooks, which basically which are like edges or slight advantages. Like, are you a legacy or like you're in-state when you're applying to a state university? And the seventh, in my opinion, is AP score. So Dan, with my list being stated, do you think this list is accurate or do you have a slightly different order? Yeah, I mean, I think you're ready to become an admissions officer. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty close. I'd say, you know, more, uh, the only thing I'll add to that is, so first off, I agree most in most, uh, most part to either order, right? That's GPA, course rigor, essays, ECs, LORs, hooks, AP scores, and obviously SATs at the end, I'd argue, uh, in this test optional world. But I think more important than the order, I think is to understand the weightage, right? And just because one is higher than the other, let's say, GPA is number one and Coursera is number two, that doesn't really mean much if you don't understand how much each matters. And I think that's also a very common question. 
so to kind of help you guys understand that is I'd say overall, like GPA transcripts, um, and that's taken into account, you know, course rigor, if you will, because we look at both unweighted and weighted GPA, that really accounts for about half students evaluative uh, you know, score, if you will. Um, and so after that, you know, it's really we examine, okay, if we, and once we establish academic aptitude, we go to the next question, which is, okay, well, what will the student bring to my community, right? And that's when we start looking at activities. And that really makes up, I think, the remainder, uh, I'd say for the, the next 40%. And the remainder after that is really the essays to provide context, additional data like LORs for schools who take it. Um, and then, you know, uh, really the AP scores and SAT tests really kind of fall into the aptitude bucket, the first part that I just mentioned. Um, but yeah, I think you did a good job of ordering overall. If there's one thing I think you're, you're really missing for schools like Stanford, MIT, Harvard, uh, Columbia, Dartmouth, those kinds of schools is, I think, a why statement, right? A sense of purpose. And you can order all these things you want, but if a student can't communicate their ambitions, their sense of purpose, uh, their, their why statement, um, then, you know, you have a lot of students with really stacked resumes, but not a really strong um, reason, you know what I mean? Because ultimately, those, those schools are looking for not just anybody, they're looking for students to invest in who are going somewhere in life. Mm -hmm. And now to follow up on that real quick. So like you were just talking about a why statement. So I know the colleges want to fit like an applicant who fits in their community. So is there like a proper way to communicate that? Like, I know you can't just say, hey, um, I want to go to Stanford because it ranks as the best university for yada, yada, yada. Like that's generally advice not to say that. So but do you have any other ways to like communicate the same statement, like in which you feel it does the job? Yeah, I like to think about it as connecting the lines, right? So the, the, there's two halves to this line. The first half is, you know, what are your, what your goals are, right? Really what your goals are and what you bring to the table and connecting that line, you know, to the intended university. So let's say it's Stanford, right? Uh, or USC or, or whatever, Georgia Tech or Johns Hopkins, whatever it is. Um, you know, that, the other part of that line is how will that, how will that school ultimately promote your goals, right? How will it equip you to achieve your goals, right? So that requires you really do research on that university. I found that a lot of students who want to go to Stanford, want to go to Harvard, want to go to USC or, or Columbia, Yale, Dartmouth, whatever, they don't know a they don't really know a darn thing about that school, right? They can't speak to the curriculum, they can't speak to the specifics of the core, they can't speak to who the professors are there and why that intrigues them, right? And so a lot of students actually they miss both halves. Right? They don't they can't communicate their purpose or their their vision for a better world. Uh, all they really have to say is I wanna be a doctor. Uh, they can't really go far much further than that. And on the other side is they don't really even understand the university that they're applying for and what makes it different from everyone else. So to put it simply, I think number one is, you know, if you're trying to communicate this all, let's say in you know, effective supplemental essays or college applications or even campus college visit interviews, um, ultimately it's like, one, can you communicate your vision, right? Where do you see yourself going? Why is that important to you? How does that align with your purpose? And then secondly, how does that align with the university, right? Why is it so important that that university can, can really promote uh, and equip you uh, towards that, that vision? If you can kind of communicate both of those aspects, then what you're, what you're communicating is fit. And that's ultimately what they're looking for. Fit of ambition and fit of vision. Thank you for that, Dan. Yeah. All right, Dan. Uh, straying away from standardized testing and the application process, uh, what should one do when they visit a college campus? Like, what should they explore that will give them the idea if that specific campus isn't suited for them? Well, we have a specific checklist um, that, that we actually give to all of our students. And in fact, I can just encourage everyone here to Google it if you're listening to this and you want to 
make the most out of the college visit, I actually just recommend Googling uh, the College Board Campus Visit Checklist. Uh, their checklist actually coincides directly with our checklist. So it's easy to find it, go and search it up. But to answer the question, if I'm just off the top of my head, I think it's really important to uh, one, talk to students on campus. I find typically a lot of students sign up for campus tours or information sessions on campus. Um, because, and because you know, talking to other students is the only real way to find out what it's actually like there, right? Secondly, it's also something that you can utilize in your college application supplements, because if you know, a very common question is, why do you want to come to our school? Well, you can refer back to that one conversation you had with XYZ students, right? Uh, you know, if you have the opportunity, also, it's a fun way, but find the best restaurant on campus. Everyone knows it. Typically, you can find out just by asking somebody who's sitting at a bench or maybe at the cafeteria, right? That's a great way to kind of just get a feel for the vibe, right? Like, where are people going to eat? You know, is it what is it like there? Is it popping? Is it boring? Uh, what are people talking about? You know, and um, last but not least, if you can, you know, shadow a class. Uh, you know, if it's a large class with popular, you know, class size, let's say 80 or above, or even 60 or above, no one's going to notice you. You know, if you just step in, shadow in the back of the, of the classroom, right? Just get a feel for what the actual teaching experience and learning experience is like there. This way, if you do those three things I just said, you'll get a feel for the social experience, you'll get a feel for the student experience, and you know, you're gonna feel for just you know what this place is just like in general, because you're about to live there for four plus years of your life. You better kind of learn what it's like, you know, boots on the ground. So don't just go for the information session at campus tour, or else all you're gonna find is just buildings. <laughs> uh, but really get interface with the actual human beings and people there. They'll tell you what it's like. Thanks for informing us, Dan. Got it. Okay, Dan, now I'm going to ask you a question that is very specific to computer science, since that's like the most competitive major or one of the most competitive majors. And so do you think an applicant who intends to major in the field of computer science, should they apply directly as a computer science major? Or should they do a specialized major in the field of computer science? So like computer engineering or data science, for example, to have a better shot at admission at these top notch universities? Well, you know, I'm going to answer this in two ways. First off is, you know, going back to the why statement, right, is if you can communicate your vision as to why CS is the thing that you want to do and you have the experience to back it up, then I, I think, and you have the grades to back it up, you know, then I don't see why not, right? Because if you have a strong story, strong vision, and you have background to prove it, then you should apply for CS. You know, what doesn't really make sense to me is when students try to overthink it. Like, they have a background, they have the grades, you know, they have everything, and they're still trying to do these weird maneuvers like, oh, I heard that maybe I should go undeclared first and go for CS later to help my chances. But all that does is really confuse the admissions readers, right? It's like, if you have, you know, we've seen everything that you did. So it's like, it wouldn't make sense to us if you applied for something different than what you've already done, right? So um, on the on the other, another way of thinking about it is um, if your vision isn't directly in line with software, then don't apply software per se, right? I, literally today, I just spoke with a student who, you know, was thinking about, uh, you know, going for, for CS, but all the things in his background, you know, weren't really communicating that. The student was much more interested in actually like, you know, mechatronics and like robotics and like, you know, in fact, the material science and the mechy side of things. So it's like, well, if that's the case, then don't force it, you know, again, align the major that you're going to apply for, uh, you know, with, with all that you've done. Now, is there a case to apply for something else and to pivot to CS in the future? Yeah, of course, right? Like I said, we so far we've been talking with the assumption that you have the grades, you have the background, right? Well, if you don't have the grades and you don't have the background, but you still want to do CS, 
yeah, in those cases, it might make sense to apply for something different like undeclared engineering or computer engineering. Because once you land in the College of Engineering at any school, it's fairly easy to switch majors into another major in that same college or department. So computer science is usually underneath the College of Engineering. So long as you get into the College of Engineering, you should be fine. You'll be prioritized to really switch any majors within that, that department. Um, so, you know, I think in that situation, right, um, then you can apply for something different first with the plan of pivot. But, you know, when we talk about things like data science or information technology or MIS, you know, things like that, you know, really make sure that those are just areas that you personally are most interested in, um, because applying from, you know, switching from those majors, which are sometimes not inside the College of Engineering to CS, is not always guaranteed. And so, you know, you have to be prepared for the worst case scenario in those cases. Mm -hmm. Okay. And just to quickly follow up on that question or on that response. So essentially, if an applicant, and you're saying, has the qualifications, they should apply as computer science. However, if they don't have that requirement, they should apply as like a different major. However, um, I've seen, or you may have also seen that a lot of qualified applicants get denied admission, even though they have all the qualifications for CS. So like they have competed in like the UCCO or they've done all the CS courses available. So what makes them get denied and what makes someone else get accepted? Yeah. So I think there tends to be this like I think really hypercritical environment we live in today, right? The first person we tend to blame is ourselves. And, you know, it's like, wait, what did we do wrong? Or, you know, and then there's a sense of cynicism, right? Against like the universities, like, why is it so unfair? You know, uh, it's like, uh, you know, I'm super qualified. How did I get rejected? And, and the, the fact of the matter is, right, is, is in the numbers, it's supply and demand, right? When UCLA has 125,000 applications, and only 7,000 seats, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, the, the fact of the matter is everyone wants to go to UCLA, but, and everyone might be qualified, but not everyone can go because they just don't have enough seats. And it's not a matter of, you know, you're not qualified or you did something wrong or the university's mean. No, it's just, there's just more demand than there are seats, right? So this is why it's really important to have a proper college that's properly diversified for risk. Um, you know, a lot of students and families overestimate where they're going to get into, and then all of a sudden they get rejected from everywhere or they're waitlisted everywhere. Um, guys, it's really important to have a good college list to kind of spread that risk out. But, you know, in short, um, if, if, if you are qualified and that happens, right, some, if some of it does come down a lot. Um, but I will say this, right, I tend to find a lot of students, you know, and parents, they think they're more qualified than they actually are. Um, and this is interesting because it's like, well, it's like, you know, I, I meet a lot, I'm, I've met with hundreds of thousands of parents and students now. I'd say, you know, probably eight out of 10 um, of them you know, who think they're qualified actually aren't that qualified. And, um, you know, a lot of it just comes down to, do you actually understand, you know, how to set yourself apart from all the other kids who did the same clubs, who took the same classes and the AP classes and went to the same community college or university classes and did the ATDP and Cosmos programs and Stanford summer programs and did the internships and did the research, you know, the truth is, right? a lot of other students did the same things, right? So just because you did them doesn't make you that much different. Um, and so specific to CS majors, right, who are looking to really get the edge, I think the one thing that we tend, I think students miss and they don't do is they don't worry, they don't think too much about actually solving real world problems. And I think if there's one tip I can give to, uh, you know, aspiring CS majors, trying to get to the place like MIT and Georgia Tech or, you know, wherever, Caltech or whatever, it's really find your reason for doing it and go out there and start solving problems or else you're just gonna relegate yourself to clubs and competitions. And if you do that, then well, 
that's what everyone else is doing, right? So if you find out really the reason why you're trying to do CS and you apply it towards the directions that you feel passionate about, naturally, you're gonna meet so many people, you're gonna get some really cool experience and you're gonna be able to talk about those, uh, those experiences on your essays and that's really what's gonna set you apart. And that's what these universities wanna invest in, right? They're trying to find the students who really, really found their why and not just, you know, that's what, you know, rather than all the students who've just done the what, 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 this, what, that. Mm -hmm. Wait, Dan, uh, uh, thanks for answering Dishan's question, but I have this question I had in my mind for a really long time. And do you think that our, our sorry, uh, do you think that our portfolios could give you an upper edge in admissions? Because I have a friend that went to Stanford and the readers said that they really liked her art portfolio. Oh yeah, I, I think it, uh, it, it, look, it's not gonna be the thing that you know gets you in almost for sure, unless you've done something just quite extraordinary and that's publicly recognized, right? But I think uh, generally art and portfolios you know, produce this genuine sense of creativity uh, and expression. Um, and you know, beyond just art, uh, schools oftentimes take portfolios with just general work products, right? So whether it's Michigan or just like the Coalition App Locker, for instance, you can upload stuff like research that you've done in the past or you know a demo of like a robot you built right so it doesn't have to just be art i think the portfolios nowadays can really kind of provide a sense of you know again that real world application um uh, and that oftentimes is what sets a student apart from the other students who are just doing competition right those are two very different things a lot of kids are competing that's the nature of our psychology today but very few students are actually solving actual problems right so whether it's an art portfolio right um, you know, or it's, or it's a creative kind of, uh, you know, portfolio with, with, you know, hands-on projects, um, you know, I think absolutely it could be the thing that really kind of, uh, gives you an edge, uh, compared to all the students who don't really have that application. Thank you. Okay, Dave. So now I'm going to ask you something about the common app. So uh, as you may know, applicants are asked to input five awards and honors and honors in the award section of the common app. So how do you think an applicant should go about this part? Is there like a strategy or like, is there any specific types of awards that they should mention and why would that be? Yeah, so first I wanna talk about order, right? And it's also applies for activities in general, like on any application portal, whether it's common app, coalition, you see, um, or native portals, um, you know, you generally wanna kind of group them. So let's say if you have five awards, you want to kind of group, let's say your major or academic specific awards together, maybe leaderships awards together and like, you know, let's say athletics together, right? So that way there's a sense of logic and organization to your awards. I generally prefer it something like that, right? Start with academic and major specific awards, then go to things that are more social in nature like leadership and service, and then end off with more creative endeavors, right? Whether it's art or something else. Um, and again, the same rule can be applied to the activity section as well. Okay, thank you. For a final question, Dan, when do you think it's the right year in high school for one to map out their college plans? We know that many people are worrying and stressing out if they are too late to start thinking about their future. Yeah, so this is a good question. Um, you know, it's funny because I literally had a parent uh, a couple of, couple of years ago, pre-COVID, uh, insist on bringing, you know, their second grader um, into the office to talk about college planning. <laughs> right. Whereas, you know, a lot of other parents bring their students or students come in, in junior year and they feel like they're late. So I think it's relative. Um, but let me try my best. As in, you know, if I, let's say I had a, you know, 
I don't know, let's say, uh, was advising a student right now, when would I tell them or their parents is the right time to map out college plans? I, I think there's a difference between first and foremost, I think directional exploration and college exploration, right? I just want to kind of note that, note that because the college exploration, in my opinion, shouldn't really start until junior year. And the reason why is because um, I say this, a lot of students and families tend to do it much earlier, right? They're thinking about Berkeley or Stanford or Harvard, like fourth grade, you know, or when their students are in eighth grade or ninth grade. And so what that does is it kind of just like, you know, it, it, it kind of teaches a student to think about their self-worth only from the frame of, okay, what can I do to make my profile stronger, right? The problem with that is when you start doing that too early, let's say in like ninth grade or 10th grade, right? If you're constantly asking yourself a question of what can I do to make myself look better, naturally you're, it's, it's going to set you up for failure because you're, all you're doing is things that are artificial and not genuine to you, right? Naturally, you're, you know, by asking that question, you're not asking, for instance, what do I just like, <laughs> right? Or how do I go about exploring the things I haven't explored yet, you know? Uh, or how do I just go about exploring the things that I do like already, right? It's not, you know, it, it's much more genuine that way. And so I, I say this because, you know, I think starting in junior year, there's, there's really two reasons for that. One, to give yourself ninth and 10th grader and eighth or seventh or whatever, to do proper exploration, to find your passions, because ultimately that's what college is looking for, right? That's what sets you apart. Um, and then secondly, you can't really do college planning until you know your grades anyway. <laughs> and so, Right? How can you plan ahead for which colleges you're even qualified for if you don't even know your ninth grade grades, tenth grade grades, and first semester eleventh grade grades? Right? Because um, all that can change. Right? So, long story short, I think that, you know it's it's about knowing when to start, but also when not to. And I'd say you know I think eleventh grade is a proper time because you have enough data, right, to really kind of uh, to determine what qualification the student has. And secondly, you've provided that student and family enough time for them to do proper amount of exploration for their interests. Um, so yeah, I think the, the biggest mistake I make, I see nowadays that families make is they started much too early and then students end up either just completely burning out or they just end up having cookie cutter resumes, right? That look like the same as everyone else. Cause again, everyone else is asking the same question. What can I do to look better for college? And so you have the same looking resumes. It's really, really sad. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. And just to continue on this topic, um, real quick. So what do you think, um, which type of extracurriculars look the best on an applicant's profile? Would it be like an extracurricular which has like a significant impact on his society, on the applicant's society? Or would it be an extracurricular in which the applicant found it really meaningful? Well, okay. When it comes to ECs, guys, it, it really comes down to, um, I think one, you know, I think, was there a genuine interest in it, right? Um, because we're gonna ask, why'd you do it in the first place, right? And again, a lot of students, they do stuff to look at for college, not because they were interested in it. So when that happens, right, we see it's like an empty shell, right? There's not really any depth there. There's not any meaning there. Student clearly was guilty of college backing. So you gotta make sure you start by just pursuing things you're naturally interested in. But let's talk about, you know, okay, well, where do we start here, right? I think there are really two general categories of PCs. One in the area of intellectual curiosity, what we call love of learning, right? Which is how have you explored your genuine curiosities outside of class, right? The other area of ECs I would argue has to be service, right? 
Some might argue, well, Dan, aren't you missing leadership? No, I would argue if you just have, if you want to explore the area of service, naturally you'll find your true leadership opportunities, right? There's no amount of service that doesn't actually contain some amount of leadership, right? It's like what you guys are doing right now, right? This podcast is a form of public service, right? So in itself is a form of leadership, right? Um, and so I'd say, okay, it starts not with asking, okay, what will colleges like to see? Rather, it's like, okay, what do I find most interesting in terms of like intellectual curiosity? And what do I find most meaningful in terms of serving and making my, my, my community a better place? If you just ask yourself those two questions and you go far in each of those questions, right? You'll have the most beautiful stories to tell on essays down the line. And you'll have some amazing stories to tell during uh, college interviews, right? Whether you're interviewing with alum, uh, or you know, campus, campus admission representative. Um, it's really about the meaning. And so uh, I just wanna emphasize that because how we measure it here, guys, just so you know, when we advise students is we, we, we uh, basically measure for two things on an EC. One, how far did you go in it, right? What we call depth. And the other thing is, okay, how many different instances of this, which we call breadth, right? So ultimately, right, in ECs, we look for how far did you go depth and how many separate instances of breadth. We want to see both, right? And uh, so it's not that we value quality over quantity. It's actually we want both quality and quantity. <laughs> um, now, granted, there is, a, there is a point of diminishing returns, right? Obviously, if you volunteer service at five or six different places, naturally, as you guys can imagine, you just don't have enough time or you know attention to go further, go far in any of them, right? So I think the general uh, number, uh, if you will, in the service category, I think it's like two, three tops, you know, not just one. I'd say two minimum or three tops. On the intellectual curiosity side, I'd say try to explore your major and something outside of your major, right? You don't want to be one-dimensional in your curiosity. You want to see what else is out there and uh, be able to talk about something that's not just engineering or not just medicine. You know, you want to be sophisticated enough to hold a conversation with someone who's, who's learning something different from you. And one final follow-up before we end up today's, wrap up today's episode. Um, so like you mentioned that the admission officers want to see extracurriculars which display passion and interest. However, so what if an applicant creates like an organization or a club later on during the high school years, like maybe during their senior year, start of senior year, admissions officer naturally think um, that they created it just for college applications. However, uh, how about if an applicant really has a passion and they just didn't have the time before to start this club or organization? How can they convey the right message to the admission officers? Beautiful question. Yeah. Um, you know, we, as an admissions evaluator myself, uh, you know, I, it's it's you're right i mean you know we spot those contrivances and you know we naturally raises an eyebrow right of was this done just to look good for college <laughs> uh but to, to kind of i think help you fully understand that i think i'll just say look it does come down to the essays and if there was a story behind that that, that ignited that passion in the first place then your essay has to be the spot um, because yeah, sure, you might have started it late in your high school career, but if there was kind of a meaning or a story or a catalyst right before that, that really kind of explained that. Again, if there was genuine interest, right, then you have to communicate that well in the essays. Another area that's been really underutilized, guys, has to be additional comments. You know, we teach all, all of our students who work with us on college applications to really, really utilize that additional comment section that most people don't to really kind of like emphasize anything they really want to, right? 
Um, and so you can really kind of utilize those essays and additional comments together to kind of work hand in hand to communicate the same vision and reason and purpose, right? So beautiful question. Um, again, a lot of students end up dedicating their essays to what they've done. And what I'm trying to tell you guys right now is even if you, whether you started it late or you started it early, you're still gonna have to communicate why you did it and why it's meaningful for you. And your essays is a one shot to do that. Unfortunately, a lot of students don't. They just think that the colleges want to know what they did. And that's the biggest uh, mistake I think students make on essay writing. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for coming to our podcast. Well, that's it for today on episode three of Weekly Dose of High School. Hope you guys enjoyed listening to Dan speak about college admissions as much as we did. Yeah, and also, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our podcast, whether you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. We're on all those platforms, and we upload weekly episodes, so make sure you subscribe so you never miss an upload. Until then, take it easy, guys.